Let's pray together. Our God, you have told us that we need to feed on the word that comes from the mouth of God. Here is your word. Here we are. We pray that you would now produce in us both a hunger and an appetite, taste buds for the things of God, that we might truly savor what you have for us here. We trust, O Lord, that you have a good word for us this morning. Now we need help from the Holy Spirit to actually hear it and see it and understand it and receive it and alter our lives because of it. Please help us to go from more than just hearing, but to be transformed by this word. Come help us to also grow in our love for Jesus and our trust in him. Do this and more than I knew to ask, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best scenes of the movie Goodwill Hunting is towards the end of the movie, right? If you haven't seen it, you had 20 years to do so, so I'm going to spoil it for you. That's your fault, not mine, right? Uh, it's the one, if you remember, where Robin Williams is the counselor, and he's working with his client, uh, Matt Damon, who's the prodigy, the genius in the movie. And one of the best scenes, the most powerful one, is the one where he finally has a breakthrough with Damon's character. Do you remember the scene? It's the one where they're talking about some trauma from Damon's past, and Robin Williams has this one line that he repeats, and he repeats it over and over and over again. You remember he says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Damon responds, he brushes that off by saying, I know. And then he says it again, it's not your fault. He brushes it off, I, I know, I know. And he says it over and over and over and over again. It's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. And something happens in that scene where Damon, who till that point had been this walled off character, who had been stoic and impervious and nothing could penetrate, suddenly he crumbles, he falls apart, and he starts sobbing like a baby. Now, Damon's character in the movie is a genius. There's nothing he doesn't know. But I think what happens in that moment is that in hearing it over and over and over again, it has the power to go from something he knows up here to dropping to something he knows in here. That's what happens in the scene. He's a genius. He knows it. And yet in hearing it said to him, to his soul, over and over and over again, slowly repeated to him, It goes from here to here. I think that's the same thing that the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is doing. You know why? He's saying some things that we've already heard him say. In fact, to be honest, I think he's saying some things that you already know. I know that you know the things that he's saying. For example, he's going to tell us in this passage that nothing in life is guaranteed. That nothing in life is certain, that you have no idea what's coming into your life. And you'd say, I know. He's going to tell us in this passage that, in fact, the only thing that is guaranteed in life, the only thing you can be sure of, is death. And that you are a little bit closer to death now than you were this morning, to which you'd brush it off and say, I know. And since life is short and unpredictable, and death is certain and sure, his point is going to be, therefore, every day and everything matters. By the way, this is the genius of the book. The genius, because it's this wise man, probably Solomon, who wrote it, the genius of it is he keeps saying, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Pointless, pointless, it's all pointless. Except when you get his point, you realize the whole thing he's been driving to is, Meaningful, meaningful, it's all meaningful. It matters, it matters, 
everything matters. Now, you know all this. You know that life is unpredictable and short, and therefore everything matters and every day counts. And that's why we have phrases like carpe diem, seize the day. It's why we have hashtags like YOLO. It's why we ask questions like, if today was your last day on earth, what would you do today? How would you live? You know all of this. These are all things that you know. In fact, that's why I want you to hear the message of Ecclesiastes 9 is simple. You already know it. But in repeating it, in whispering it to your soul over and over and over again, he's hoping, the preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, is hoping that it'll go from here to something you know in here. That the message will sink, that it'll drop, and that you'll truly get it. And to get this across, the way that the preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, is going to structure the passage we're looking at. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you've got a Bible, turn it open there, 557 in the Bibles in front of you. The way he's going to structure this passage, Ecclesiastes 9 verses 1 through 12, is he's going to sort of form a sandwich. Whereas he's going to give you a layer at the top and a layer at the bottom, and his point is going to be the meat in the middle. His message, what he wants to really drive home, is the meat in the middle. In the top and the bottom, he's going to tell you that you can't be sure of anything in life except for death, and therefore, here's how you should live as a result. You get it? That's the structure of this thing. In a nutshell, here's what he's saying. Friend, you've got this one unpredictable, brief life. So how are you supposed to live today? That's what he wants you to answer. Well, before we get to the meat, let's work through the sandwich. Here's the first layer. The first thing he wants you to hear is that life is unpredictable and uncertain. I see this in chapter 9, verses 1 and verses 11 to 12. Let me read you 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Here's what the preacher says. He's sort of winding down to his conclusion, and he says, look, I've laid all this to heart, meaning the preacher has taken a good long look at life under the sun. That's his phrase, right? Life on this planet. He's, he's been a student of human experience, of the human narrative, and he has come to this conclusion. He's examined it all. Here's his conclusion. He says, ultimately, if you were to look at this at the highest level, say 30,000 feet in the air, at the highest level, everything that happens, happens by the hand of God, right? Ultimately, at the highest level, whether the deeds of the righteous or the, the wise, all that happens is in the hand of God, verse 1, right? Everything that happens, and he said this before in Ecclesiastes 3, do you remember? In 3, it was, look, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to love and hate, a time to plant and to pluck up what's planted. There's all these seasons of life, and, and it's not random. It's all by the sovereign hand of God. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 would say, he makes everything beautiful in his time. So, ultimately, 30,000 feet in the air, everything that happens, happens by the hand of God. But, on the ground level... At eye level, as life as you and I experience it, to us, it all feels random and unpredictable and uncertain, and you have no idea what's coming down the pike for you. 
Do you hear me? It may be true that up at 30,000 feet, God's sovereign, everything's happening to his hand. But to us at ground level, on the earth, on the ground, walking in human experience, for us, we have no idea what life is going to bring. It all feels uncertain and unpredictable. And it does not matter, even if you're righteous and wise. Even if you're righteous and wise, you don't know, verse 1 says, whether love or hate, which is another way of saying good or evil, is coming for you. Even if you're righteous and wise, you don't know if love or hate is coming for you. Good or evil is coming for you. In fact, if you were to just judge by the external things that happen to someone's life, you wouldn't even be able to tell if God loves that person or hates that person. If I were going to just judge by the external circumstances of one person's story, you wouldn't even be able to know if this person's in favor with God or a foe of God's. In fact, you could just ask the biblical character of Job. If you've ever heard of Job's story, Job was a wise and righteous man, and calamities of all kinds came to his life so that his friends couldn't figure out whether Job was a sinner or a saint. Because judging by just what happens on the outsides, you don't know. You see, life is unpredictable. In fact, to us on the ground level, Life feels a bit unfair that way. It doesn't matter if you're a good person. Good people are just as likely to walk into the office on Monday morning and get a pink slip as they are a promotion. They're just as likely. In fact, for us, the wise and the righteous are just as susceptible to getting flat tires and sitting in rush hour traffic and missing flights and having their homes broken into and coming down with some disease. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner or a saint. Good people are just as likely to get leaky roofs and be susceptible to identity theft and conflict in relationships and, and job offers from Dallas. All kinds of bad things can happen to us, right? It doesn't matter whether you're good or you're evil. Do you hear me? Rain falls on the wise and the wicked, and the sun shines on the sinner and the saint. Life is a mixed bag for everyone. Life is a mixed bag for everyone, and nothing in life is certain or sure. In fact, this is what he picks up in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. It's written beautifully. Do you hear it? He's saying, look, we all know how life is supposed to work. If you're fast, you win the race. If you're strong, you win the battle. If you're intelligent, you get rich. That's the way life is supposed to work. Except, of course, when it doesn't. Except, of course, when it doesn't. Do you remember what we said in week one? In week one of Ecclesiastes, we said, if you want a book of the Bible that will tell you the general principles of life, the general rules of life, read Proverbs. Proverbs is a great book for all the general principles and wisdom for life. It, Proverbs will tell you, look, if you want to get ahead, be fast, be smart, put your head down, wake up early, you'll be ahead and be successful. That's the way life works. Proverbs, we said, is like the kid in the class who raises his hand to say what? If you're going to spell, I comes before E. I before E will help you spell lots of words correctly. And then Ecclesiastes is what? Ecclesiastes is the kid that raises his hand and goes, yes, I comes before E. 
except after C and sometimes Y. Because Ecclesiastes loves to say, yes, there are rules, but there are always exceptions to the rules. And life never works out according to all the rules. Ecclesiastes will tell you, yes, the fast are supposed to win the race, except when they don't. Ask Lola Jones. She was, in the 2008 Beijing Olympics, the fastest woman on the planet. The clear favorite for the first gold medal, the first prize. The gun goes off. She trips on the ninth hurdle, comes in seventh rather than first. The fast win the race, except when they don't. The strong win the battle, just except ask Goliath about the time a scrawny pipsqueak named David went to fight him. That's the way life works. You go to a high school reunion, and the guy voted most likely to succeed doesn't, at least not always. And the person you didn't even know was in your class has made it big. That's the way life works. Nothing in life is certain. Everything is unpredictable. Nothing is sure. And moreover, you have no idea when tragedy or disaster or accidents or death comes your way. In fact, that's what he says in verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Do you hear that? He's saying, look, you go through life just swimming along. You're like Dory in the ocean. Just, you just keep swimming. You keep swimming. And then a net comes out of nowhere. Or you're just a bird. You're soaring until suddenly you're snared. This is the way life works. None of us know what the next moment holds. Nothing in life is guaranteed. Now hear me. You already know this up here. But the preacher is repeating it to you. He's whispering it to your soul so that it might have the chance to sink in. Can you hear him? Can you hear him say to you, life is uncertain and unpredictable and you are not guaranteed anything? You'd go, I know, I know. Hear it again. Your life, friend, is unpredictable and uncertain. And nothing about your life is guaranteed. I got it, preacher. No, no, friend. Your life, your spouse, your children, your best laid plans for your life, none of it is guaranteed to you. You have no idea what's coming down the pike. You have no idea what's coming down the pike for you. You have no idea what's coming down the pike for those you love. Life is uncertain. Your life is unsure. You are guaranteed nothing. And maybe, just maybe, it starts to sink. And if it starts to sink, well, the preacher has another layer to the sandwich. Where he wants to follow that up by saying, not only is life unpredictable and uncertain, the only thing in life that is predictable and certain is death. Look at what he says. I see this in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What's the event that happens to all? Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and the madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, 
they go to the dead. You hear what he's saying? You can't be sure of anything in life except for death. That you can be sure of. You hear me? Death is batting a thousand. It comes for us all. It makes no exceptions. The grave is not a discriminator of people. In fact, here's his point. It does not matter how you lived. Whether you were a sinner or a saint, whether you were wise or wicked, whether you were naughty or nice, the grave doesn't care. Because the grave comes for all. Us human beings can take very different paths in life. And no matter which route you take, you will come to the same destination. No matter what the scenery looks like along life, as you drive down life, you will all end up at the same place. Whether sinner or saint, wicked or wise, naughty or nice, it does not matter. Mother Teresa and Hugh Hefner and Martin Luther King Jr. and Adolf Hitler and Gandhi and Mussolini and on and on and on it goes, they all come to the same place. Now, we, 21st century Americans, would tell the preacher of Ecclesiastes, we don't talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We certainly don't talk about death. But here's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes would say. The preacher of Ecclesiastes does not share our avoidance of this reality. We live like life is certain and death is avoidable. And the preacher thinks nothing in life is certain and death is unavoidable. And the preacher doesn't share your naivety, and the preacher doesn't share our sentimentality when it comes to death. The preacher will not pretty up death by talking of being passed away. He, he, won't, he won't talk about the circle of life. He won't sing that death is just a natural part of life. The preacher, the Bible, won't do that with death. In fact, the Bible says death is a horrible enemy. Death, one writer said, will leave your cheeks tear-stained and gash your heart to a thousand pieces. Death is a horrible, evil enemy. Death is not a natural part of life. It's an awful consequence of man cutting himself off from God, who is the source of life. We were like flowers with roots in God. And we cut ourselves off from him so that we could be independent and autonomous and free. And we fell off from God and we fell to the ground and we shriveled and we died. This is what death is. And the preacher won't avoid it. And so the preacher is repeating something you know and know well so that it sinks in. Can you hear him? He's saying to you, you're going to to die. I know, preacher. No, no, friend. You are going to die. I got it. I want you to hear the preachers looking at you and saying, your life will not go on forever. You are going to die. And it will leave tears staining the cheeks of some and gash the hearts of others to a thousand pieces. Your end is sooner now than it was this morning. You're going to die. And yet, here's what I need you to get ready to shift with me. As ironic as it may be, the preacher is not trying to be morbid. As unexpected and ironic, and though it may not feel like it this moment, there's this strange twist to what he's trying to communicate. Here it is. 
His goal is actually not to fixate you on death, but rather to use death in order to help you focus on life. Hear me and don't miss this. His goal is not to get you to fixate on death, but to actually use death to help you focus on life. Like a good doctor would come to you and say your cholesterol's high, isn't because he's being morbid. It's actually good so that you might hear him promote you and urge you and prod you towards good, healthy living. A doctor would not be doing you a favor by hiding high cholesterol from you. In fact, he's telling you that so that he might push you towards life. And it may come as a surprise to you, but nobody is for life more than this preacher. And more than that, nobody is for a good, abundant, joyful life more than this preacher. In fact, the preacher knows being alive is better than being dead. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 4 to 6. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Do you hear what the preacher is saying? The preacher is trying to get you to see, I'm saying all this so that you can understand being alive is better than being dead. Life is better than death. So hear me, if you've ever struggled with suicidal thoughts, the preacher of Ecclesiastes would come to you and gently say to you, friend, life is better than death. Being alive is better than being dead. For after all, those who are living have hope. They can make changes. Life can go a different way. Those who are living suddenly still have the opportunity for repentance and and hope and, and new directions in their life. But the dead, they have nothing. All those feelings, he says, love, hate, jealousy, that seem invincible and permanent, they'll go away in the grave. They're dormant. But the living have hope. In fact, to get that across, he uses this great proverb. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. In that day, a dog wasn't man's best friend. A dog was a measly mutt ravaging through the streets, a a, a diseased mongrel. It's, It's the way we'd see a rat. And he's trying to compare, well, listen, even if you've got a majestic king of the jungle lion, what good is it if it's dead? A diseased rat is better than a dead lion. A dog, even a living dog is better than a dead lion. Life is better than death. You see, here's his point. Life is better. Life matters. And as odd as it may sound, the point of this whole passage is to help you think, how should you live? With the time God gives you, how should you live? In fact, here's the message of the passage. In a nutshell, since life is unpredictable and short, enjoy everything God gives you. Since life is unpredictable and short, enjoy every day and everything that God gives you. And enjoy it with all your heart. And enjoy it with all your might. In fact, if you don't know what tomorrow will bring, then be determined to live out fully today. If you don't know what's coming down the pike, then enjoy the present with all your might Have a blast while you last. That's the point, right? In fact, here's the wise response to a life that is unpredictable and short.
the wise response is to enjoy everything that God gives you in this life. The meat in the middle, that's the message. 9 verse 7 through 10, hear it. And I think it's one of the best passages in Ecclesiastes. You should, you should frame this passage and put it in your house. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in your life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Did you hear him? The message, which is a loose paraphrase of the Bible, says this beautifully as well. In fact, let me read it for you. Hear it as it's translated or paraphrased in the message. It says it this way. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it and heartily. This is your last and only chance at it, for there's neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you are most certainly headed. Do you hear him? I think if you take this into your heart, it's one of the most freeing and wondrous passages there is. The preacher is saying, I want you, God wants you to enjoy the life he's given you. For as many days as he's given it to you, with all the might that you have. Can you imagine that a God who is so for you, he wants to give you wisdom for your life. And the wisdom is, enjoy this life. Enjoy every bit of it. Now hear me, this isn't the first time the preacher has talked about enjoying life. He talked about it in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 5, in chapter 8. He will say it again in chapter 11. And yet nowhere in the book does he say it as strongly as he does here. You know why? Here... These aren't even just suggestions. The, the way he says these are imperatives, meaning he uses command language. These are not God's suggestions for your brief and unpredictable life. These are God's commands for how you should live today since life is brief and unpredictable. In fact, he's got a series of imperatives. Would you just hear what these are? They come all with exclamation points in the original language. It's go. Eat, drink, enjoy, do. Do you think of God that way? Then when he gives you advice for your life, what he wants to tell you is go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. These are the commands of God to your brief and precarious life. Go, that is, get after this. Don't sit around. Don't mope anymore. Don't waste any more time. Life is short and brief and unpredictable. And so get after enjoying all that God gives you with all the might that you have. Eat your bread with a glad heart. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Right? 
He, he says, if you've been given a spouse, then love your spouse and enjoy your life. Or loved ones, the application would still be. Enjoy life with those God has provided. Wear festive clothes. Celebrate life. This would be the point of this. If God's given you work to do, do it with both hands, with all your might. Do meaningful work and give it all that you have. These are the commands of God. This one writer named David Gibson He paraphrases and he says, listen, these imperatives, these commands weren't meant to be exhaustive. They're just sort of getting the ball rolling. They're just sort of getting you beginning to think, if life is brief and unpredictable, what should occupy my life? Let me give you just this paragraph of suggestions from David Wilson. David Gibson would say it this way. Add on to that, ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon, go to the theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, call your parents, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plant a church, start a school, speak about Christ, travel to somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune, and then some shape someone else's life by laying down your own. You know, one of the most godly, wonderful applications of this passage would be go to lunch and start writing out what your list would look like. Could you imagine a God who is so for you that a godly exercise for you on a Sunday would be what would bring your life great joy? And to hear God say, go, exclamation point, eat, exclamation point, drink, exclamation point, enjoy, exclamation point, do, exclamation point. It's almost hard to believe, which is why the preacher needs to repeat it over and over and over again so that it might have the chance of sinking. Your life is brief and unpredictable, but God is so for you. He wants you to enjoy your life. I know. No, no, friend. God wants you to enjoy your life. I got it. Friend, God wants you to have a blast, to enjoy your life and every gift that he has given you for as many days as he gives you. You see, if you let this sink, then you're realizing that the preacher is saying that he he doesn't know anything about sour, dour, grumpy religion. He doesn't know about a spirituality that seems to suggest God is happiest when you are saddest. In fact, that's not his message. In fact, his message is God has given you good things in life so that you can enjoy them and you can enjoy them guilt-free. My religious friends, you have such a hard time with this. I have such a hard time with this. Guilt-free. In fact, do you know that he adds in this verse, eat your bread with a merry heart and drink your wine with joy? For God has already approved what you do. Guilt-free. For God has already approved what you do. You know what that means? God put his seal of approval a long time ago on the things in this passage. To eat and drink and love a spouse and do good work. God put his stamp of approval on that a long time ago. In fact, when God first made the world, He made a garden where there was food to eat and good things to drink. There was a spouse to love and work to do and God to worship. And he pronounced over all of that, it is good. 
God has put his seal of approval on that a long time ago. In fact, as the story of the Bible continues, what happens, however, is that we rejected God and took those things and worshipped them. We started making the point of life the stuff from the giver rather than the giver himself. And we turned those gifts into God. And the tragedy of tragedies is we took food and drink and work and wealth and spouse and sex and we made that the point of life under the sun. And when gifts become gods, then everything is twisted and broken. And we already saw this, didn't we, in chapter 2? The preacher went after wine and women and wealth and work with all his might. And at the end of it all, he said, vanity of vanities. Because it can't satisfy. Do you remember the quote from Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady and Jim Carrey? Reaching the pinnacle of all there is to reach. Having all there is to have and saying, God, the it I was looking for evades me. It didn't satisfy. There's a big space in my soul. You see... Religious people, we make the mistake of rejecting God's gifts because we've got this warped spirituality that thinks that all the physical things of life, we're somehow holier if we reject them all. And so we miss out on the simple pleasures of life. But irreligious people, we make the mistake of worshiping the gifts rather than God and making the point of them the point of life, and they never satisfy they always fail to meet our expectations. They always fail us. The money will never be enough. The sex will never be good enough. The relationships will never be intimate enough. Nothing you bank on will ever be it for you because it wasn't designed to be. And the preacher is saying there's another way, the Christian way, the way of the scriptures would be we don't reject God's gifts and we don't worship God's gifts. We worship God and receive his gifts each day with gratitude. That's the way to live. And that's the way to live the good life in this brief and precarious life that we have. The person who lived this the best, the wisest person who had ever lived on the planet, who embodied the message of Ecclesiastes better than anyone has, was a man named Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And tell me, did not Jesus embody the message of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes? I remember being in seminary and a professor saying to me, have you ever noticed Jesus never turned down an invitation to dinner? There's never a time where food and drink was offered to Jesus that he didn't accept. One writer wrote, Jesus ate his way through all the Gospels, right? In fact, his critics noticed this about him so much. Do you remember what his haters said? He's a glutton and a drunkard. Because wherever there's food and wherever there's drink, Jesus Christ seems to be there. And you can bet he ate his bread with joy and he drank his wine with a merry heart. All the way until the night he was about to die. The night before, he sits down one last time with those whom God had given him to love. And he sits in a company of them and there's bread and there's wine. And he transforms this meal into something with divine significance. He makes it this heavenly moment. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this, this is my body which is broken and given for you. And then he takes that cup and he says, this wine is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And that simple meal was turned into this religious moment 
where something bubbled up in their hearts. And it wasn't just that they ate the bread and drank the wine. It made them think upwards of the one beyond the sun. And then Jesus Christ not only used that meal, that bread and that wine, to point to what he had come to do for us, but he promised them that after he died and on the third day rose again, he would go up to heaven. And then he said, and this meal that I eat with you, I won't eat again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of my father. And so suddenly the bread and the wine became not just something good here, but a foretaste of something better in life beyond the sun. Suddenly the meal points to a world beyond the sun and it all becomes an appetizer, a preview, a glimpse, a foretaste of something better. Do you know that's what God has designed all his gifts to do? All the gifts of God are meant to cause in your heart this longing for your real home, the real country, the real world beyond the sun that will break into this world one day. This week, let me end with this. I I read again, I I was on a plane, so I read again The Last Battle, which is C.S. Lewis's last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the seventh one. It's this great kids series, but I've always loved that series. In The Last Battle, there's this lion named Aslan. He's the Jesus figure of the story. He's got this country, and he takes the people from Narnia, which is their land, to Aslan's country. And when they get there, one of the creatures who who missed Narnia and couldn't believe that Narnia was over with all of Narnia's goodness now steps into Aslan's country. And the creature says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. That's a great quote. Come further up, come further in, and then this is how Lewis ends. And as for, the end of, as for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Every gift of God is supposed to make you homesick for that land and the world beyond the sun. You see, here's the difference. If you don't have Jesus, all you can do is eat and drink and be merry before you die. But if you have Jesus, then you can eat and drink and be merry because it's a preview of what you will do after you die. Eden was a world where there was food and drink and someone to love, and work to do, and God to worship. And there's a world beyond the sun that will break into our lives. And you know what will be there? There'll be food, and drink, and people to love, and work to do, and God to worship. And it will be very good. So here's some questions for you. If life is brief and unpredictable, have you made peace with God? Because Jesus would say to you, what does it matter? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Who are you to say, oh man, whether your life will not be required of you this night? Have you made peace with God? If life is unpredictable and short, let me ask you, brother and sister, have you made peace with other people? Who knows how long that other person will be there? Who knows how long you'll be there? 
So how long will you keep this going? Write the letter. Make the call. Set the appointment with the counselor. Bury the bitterness. Work through that hurt. Don't nurse it any longer, for life is short and unpredictable, and you are not guaranteed your moment or that person's next moment. And if life is predict unpredictable and short, then the wisdom of Ecclesiastes would be enjoy everything about today. Squeeze everything that God gives you today with both hands, with all your might, for he has given you this to, for your pleasure, for God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Let's pray together.